0: Hello. Hello, my guest today on Historically Thinking is Joseph G. Manning. Since 2009, he's been the William Kelly and Marilyn Milton Simpson Professor of Classics and History at Yale University. He is also a senior research scholar at Yale Law School and, you won't see this coming, professor of forestry and environmental studies in the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Author of numerous monographs and articles, editor of many more, he's most recently published The Open Sea the economic life of the ancient Mediterranean world from the Iron Age to the rise of Rome, which is the subject of our conversation today. Joe Manning, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, Al. Thanks. So uh,
0: this is a big book, not in terms of size. Uh, there, We've had uh, some, several conversations recently that are uh, re- books like uh, Alex, Alex Mika Bridge's book, uh, Napoleonic Wars is certainly bigger. However, it's extremely dense, and it's dealing with a really um, important area of. I, w- I was trying to think of how many things the ancient economy is tied to, and I realized it's at the bottom of so much of modern historical and uh, social thought, going back to Marx, if not beyond, uh, going forward to Max Weber and others that you discuss. And so you, you write this. Let me, let me read you to yourself from the introduction. It's a, a, a bit long, but I think it'll start off the, the conversation for our listeners. Um, you say, why does the ancient economy matter? It is one of the main sources of debate about what we can and cannot know about the ancient world. Indeed, scholars looking at precisely the same evidence can conclude radically different things about what the evidence means for economic behavior or performance. To say that understanding the ancient economy has been a battleground for a century is an understatement. The battle lines have been drawn in binary opposition, either or. Primitivism, modernism, substantism, formalism, pessimist, optimist, use value, exchange value, status, contract, rational, irrational, oikos, polis, private, public, market, non-market, classical, near eastern, west, east, ancient, modern, sort of like us, not like us at all. This kind of Manichaean framing, as I will argue below, is too simplistic, and to reduce historical investigation to opposed pairs in order to make arguments usually directed to the other camp and almost always to score points makes little sense. So, uh, how do we get here? How did the study of the ancient economy become this really impressively long list of Manichaean opposites?
1: Well, that's a great, uh, great way to start, Al. Uh, well, it's a very old subject, uh, and as as you um, imply, a lot of the great thinkers uh, in the European tradition, certainly uh, in the social sciences. I mean, the origin of the historical social sciences, and including things like sociology and economics, really derive uh, in large part from looking at um, ancient texts that is specifically classical. Um texts that have uh, come down to us uh, in direct transmission. Um, and understanding what these texts are telling us uh, with respect to how things uh, how things work, how things should work, um, and so on. So uh, ancient what we would call ancient economic sources uh, these days really uh, uh, and I'm including that uh, ancient legal sources that Max Weber was really keen uh, to to study. In particular, uh, all of that is part of uh, the kind of origins of the historical social sciences, including uh, economics. So it's a pretty big deal to uh, this this debate about how do we understand something so remote and yet something so fundamentally important uh, to the ancients as well as to us.
0: And, and I can recall, I mean, given the importance, the. the... That the ancient economy, given the, the, the outsized, well, influence that Marxist theory had for 150 years, um, the the way of seeing the history of the world's economies and the sort of the uh, the, the, the historical frame for that means that the ancient economy um, is going to always be essential to a Marxist discussion of history. Um and yes. to a, a way of analyzing the stages of capitalism and the stages of economic development. So that must have also mm-hmm. given a tremendous energy to the, the, the place of ancient economy. i started sorry to go on, but I recall yeah. the sociology mm-hmm. department at my undergraduate institution, which was very Marxist, and which is uh, a majority of them were fascinated with the ancient economy. And I never could understand why. I didn't understand the importance of the ancient mm-hmm. economy to Marx, to, to Marxist theory. Mm-hmm. Um, that gave mm-hmm. put a lot of gas in the ancient economies tank as well.
1: Yes, indeed, uh, Marx, Max Weber, uh, Karl Polanyi—these uh, are uh, really important uh, big thinkers, uh, still quite relevant for today. Um, and uh, you know, it raises the question: uh, beginning with their work, uh, how do we understand the change over time? Should we look at anything ancient as a precursor? uh to uh modern developments modern thinking modern economic institutions um or not you know a lot of economists for example even some economic historians would say well nothing really matters before about 1945 uh the world <laughs> the world has changed so much uh, in terms of institutions in terms of technology uh ac- economic growth you name it uh so anything before about mid 20th century is really it's sort of nice. It's 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 exotic, um, but it really doesn't tell us anything. But other people would say, actually, longer term historical thinking is really important to understand uh, change over uh, over time, which is what history should be doing.
0: Sure. And it, and this gets it. I mean, in my own area, in, in early modern 18th century history, uh, to paraphrase Philip Larkin, mm. um, economic capitalism began in 1662 uh, or something like that you know it's and then you say well wait didn't there weren't the roman didn't the romans buy and sell didn't they try to well no that but that wasn't capitalism um and then you get into this manichaean debate about you know was there where does capitalism begin um as you are indicating this is a problem of terms yes what's the problem of terms here
1: That's right. So this is where the debate kind of comes down still. And I will maybe we'll talk uh, in a second about why I think that's kind of a stale debate. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it is um, how do we understand the the ancient world? How do we understand 2000 years ago through our own our own uh, uh, lens? Um, uh, in the modern world? Um, do, can we use our, all the tools we have these days? Or uh, is the ancient world, the world of classical Mediterranean, or even the world of ancient Egypt, is it so different um, that we can only understand it pretty much in, in what we have uh, in, their, uh, in their language? Um, things that sur- The stuff that survives that are sitting in museums uh, and, and libraries um, these days. How do we understand... Um, what we're looking at, what, what's, what's happening. Uh, and it's actually a deceptively difficult problem um, to, to do to kind of dismiss your priors. An economist would say your assumptions um, about how things um, work uh, because so much of the ancient world walking through the Metropolitan Museum or uh, the galleries at Yale or wherever else, uh, it looks immediately uh, human Um, It it does seem that we can relate to it in some ways, Um, but, uh, you know, there are, uh, how do we say, you know, different mentalities that are uh, not documented that we don't actually have that we can't, in fact, touch. Uh, So it's hard to reach out to understand the world that we we would like to relate to, because after all, relative to the history of the Earth or the universe, 2000 years ago, it's not very long, mm-hmm. uh, and yet the world can seem quite remote. Um, and and so, how do we understand uh, this kind of this this time uh, mm. span?
0: You know, how did what was when Marx and then Weber uh, and then um, were what sources were they using to understand the ancient world? And what have uh, and that, I guess this applies to most people up until the last relatively recently. What were the sources they were using?
1: Uh, these are mainly uh, Greek and Roman, uh, almost exclusively Greek and Roman um, sources, of course, uh, literary sources. Uh, the, the the things we all know about um, uh, historians like Herodotus um, or Polybius or uh, or the Roman historians. Um, some of the uh, economic, what we would call the economic thinkers, I think uh, people like Xenophon in the fourth century BC, who was writing about um, household economy and and state finance. Um, and, and, so on, um, Plato, Aristotle being really important, of course, at the top of the heap in terms of, um, thinkers, of course, um, mm-hmm. who, uh, who devoted a lot of attention, Aristotle and his school, especially to understanding, um, things like money, um, and exchange. Um, so these are, these are the foundational texts that, uh, uh, these, these early, uh, European, uh, thinkers are, are reading and trying to understand, uh, yeah.
0: So they're looking at a, a, a very – well, let's just say a very small number, maybe not by yeah. classical standards, a very small number of elite thinkers. Um, oh, yeah. And Weber is actually also interested in law uh, where he can find yes. it. But then he's he's dependent upon mm-hmm. – I mean he dies in what, 1920s? Uh, he's dependent upon the archaeological discoveries that, uh, that have been made up into that time uh, for the the, um, the things that have been found on in inscriptions and so on.
1: Yeah. And he's dependent on a few um, German, especially um, ancient historians um, of of his day who are informing uh, his work either on law or uh, what he called agrarian sociology, a very famous book um, that people still read, I think, with great profit. Um, And so he's, you know, he's deriving what he understands uh, and he's uh, fairly intuitively brilliant about how things um, work. But, you know, it's fairly narrow base of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um and not understanding often uh particularly the non-Roman sources um in in the original.
0: You mentioned uh, Polanyi. Uh could you who was he and what's his importance? He's less well known than than Marx or Weber.
1: gosh Karl Polanyi is uh you know one of the great uh, thinkers uh, uh in, in economics. You know, he's sort of he's he hit, fell on hard times um for a, a lot of reasons mainly because uh he was anti-market anti-free market. He thought the free market is a, is a fantasy. It doesn't really exist. It's about um, social relations, and that's a better way for humans to live. Um, you can imagine how that goes down to uh, in the neoclassical economics world. But in fact, he's been revived uh, post-2008 financial crisis. Is that? wow, well, wait a minute. Uh, maybe he was onto something about uh, how societies really ought to work. Um, you know, social relationships are, are really important. And the free market um, outside of government regulation, for example, in his view, doesn't really exist. It's a pure fantasy. It's it's, it's about uh, how governments are are creating institutions and, and regulating them and so on. You really can't have something out, outside of uh, uh, an independent, this kind of idea of the self-regulating free market. Well, it just collapsed, didn't it, in 2008? So that must not be right. Anyway, uh, there's been a, a major reassessment, I think, of Polanyi, Polanyi's thinking uh, since 2008. So I think he's being read now with a little more care. There's a lot of books and conferences I've noticed um, since 2008 um, on Polanyi, kind of rethinking him a little bit where he fits in the in the scheme of things. He's certainly a very important um, economic thinker. He wrote really uh, influential books on, on the history of trade, um for example looking at the development from ancient times um into modern times and actually using the ancient world as kind of a uh a prism a kind of a a, a place that we ought to really think hard about because maybe they got it right uh about s- uh, social relationships and how societies really best function but,
0: but at the same time he's not he's an economist he's not an ancient historian unlike Moses Finley right uh, you spend some time That's in right. introduction time on Moses Finley uh who I never heard of I have to I have to shame ashamedly admit Um, uh, And he's important to your story He's important to, as an architect of this idea of the ancient economy Even though you're kind of quickly rubbish uh, or go at least let's say <laughs> let's say move beyond his idea of the ancient economy So who was he and what was his idea of the ancient yeah. economy?
1: Oh, so Moses Finley is uh, is still uh, He died in 1986 uh, Still Uh, He's still around, uh, an amazing intellectual, uh, an American um, at base, uh, at least originally, uh, certainly sympathizing with Marxist thought, although that's hardly a rare thing Um, in his day. Most historians and social scientists were quite familiar with with Marx. Um, But he gets caught up in the McCarthy investigations. He gets kicked out of uh, Rutgers University. Um, he's kind of a self-taught um, genius, it, it graduated um, Syracuse University at an extremely um, young age, 12 or 13 or something like that. Um, so uh, a brilliant guy, sort of self-taught, uh, very much interested in uh, historical social sciences, um, becomes a, a professor of of, of of history at Rutgers, gets kicked out of Rutgers, ends up at Cambridge University, uh, where he would become uh, a real giant um, in ancient history in the in the uh, 60s and um, and, and 70s, um, ending up being uh, the head of a college um, there um, eventually and trained uh, a a very large generation. Um, So he's a a very important figure um, in ancient history, um, although the way he published was sort of um, interesting, perhaps more famous for his radio interviews um, than um, very learned books, although he could certainly crank out technical Um, books. His dissertation was very technical on on land tenure and credit um, in in ancient Greece, very technical work on inscriptions and and economy. But um, he wrote a book, that's why he's important for this story, called simply The Ancient Economy. And it's been around uh, in countless translations and editions now um, since the 70s. It's probably the book that if you're an economist, or an historian, not in the ancient world, it's probably the book you know. Um, that's right. It's, that's one uh, as
0: a medieval study <laughs> In medieval studies, that was the book that I read about the ancient economy.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. it's it's amazing. Uh, it has a long life. Um, and, but, but as I say, I mean, it, it's a brilliant book. Although I think it's uh, wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so But, what, what, it, it, I, but, but that kind of gives us, I, as you're, you're, you're suggesting, that gives us sort of the standard received history. The, yeah. uh, as I like to think of it, there's, there's always an SRH. Um, and so what's, yeah. uh, and I, I picked it up, I realized it was in the water. Um, we've all, uh, people who are not ancient uh, experts in the ancient economy um, probably have some kind of version of this. So we better, we better, what's Finley's idea? What's the, what's the standard received history that he creates?
1: So the basic idea is, well, uh, and by ancient, he means Greece and Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and specifically, he, he looks at uh, the Roman, Repo- uh, Roman Republic and before that classical Greeks, mainly Athens, because that's where most of the evidence um, derives. Um, and basically says there's no concept in the ancient world of the economy as a separate sphere of of, of interaction, the way it is constructed in, in modern societies. There's no concept of that in the ancient world. So we can't really talk about the economy the way an economist talks about the modern American economy. You just can't do it. Um, and what really matters in the ancient world um, is elite behavior um, and elite relationships um, with each other. Um, so they're not thinking about investment um, or, or other things that we might think uh, economies are about or economic behavior is about. It, it's about um, elite behavior and elites maintaining elite status um, with, with respect um, to each other. That, uh, that is what is the, the at the kernel of it, which is why you can dismiss a lot of the evidence. And remarkably, if you read through the book, it's almost all literary evidence mm-hmm. um, rather than uh, inscriptions or coins or – Certainly the, the papyri, the things I work on from Egypt, because Egypt's such a different place anyway. So uh, uh, trade, um, archaeology, all that can be dismissed. It's, it's around, but it doesn't really matter um, in, in Finley's view. <laughs> what, what, what matters is this basic idea of, of elite behavior, which is not incorrect, by the way. But he sort of strips off everything else and said, this is the kernel of what I'm thinking about. And it's rhetorically a brilliant um, book on the way he constructs it, it's very hard to take him on unless you take on his entire understanding of of the ancient world, which is a a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I have my graduate students still read the book, uh, because I think it's a brilliant book, despite the fact that now we can pick it apart, you know, sentence by sentence, say, well, no, actually, uh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But the challenge really is to build a different model, a different uh, understanding of ancient economies, plural. Uh, and that actually is the, uh, a huge task. This is what I try to do in, in OpenSea, is to say, actually, I once thought the ancient economy is, is kind of tired and dead. It's a, The debates are stale. We've done what we can do. And I started looking at it and rethinking again. And actually, there's everything to do. It's actually a terribly exciting field. It's as relevant as it was a hundred years ago, for everything, including understanding how economies work um, in the modern world or, or how they don't work, um, but it's it's really challenging to try to get at it um, in mm-hmm. a different way than Finley did.
0: So you're just suggested a couple things that are wrong. One is uh, it's not ancient; the ancient economy. It's ancient economies, uh, plural. Yes. The other is yes. it's, it's not static; um, it changes, uh, which. Yes. Um, it's interesting because that goes against, I think, the way that we insist on seeing the ancient world. or Sometimes everything be- prior to our birth, it's all more or less the same thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And so we think of this 1,000 years of – or 1,500 years, 2,000 years of history. Oh, yeah. More or less the same thing. Uh, they, that, they, yeah. They, they yeah. dealt with the economy and trade and say Constantine's Rome pretty much the same way they did and say, oh, I don't know the Mycenaean era. Um well, that's just crazy when you say a sentence like that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, often, exactly. That's, yeah. that's often, I mean, for, as an early an early modern historian, that might be sort of my perspective on how things are done back then.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's true of uh, uh, a, a lot of historians, uh, a lot of my colleagues, and it's true also of, of you know economic historians, even even great uh, economists like Thomas Piketty and and others who yeah you know, well history matters um and they they sort of give a cartoon version of well, there's an ancient economy and yeah, coinage, money, <laughs> yeah, they probably had trade you know it, it's sort of a cartoon paragraph, and then they move on to the important thing. This is done a lot now that they kind of there's a kind of a cartoon version of of ancient world, kind of summary um And very often a footnote to Finley and then and then let's move on. But actually that misses a lot of really important, really interesting things about the ancient world. As you say, it's it's a dynamic, fascinating, uh, complex world.
0: Well, you certainly make it seem so. Um, so, where does the debate? Where does what are some new directions you suggest? In I think the second, the first chapter, some new directions uh, for studying uh, pre-modern economics. Um, what, what, what about? Let's begin with the role of institutions. What's you know, what's what new directions do the role of institutions provide for this?
1: So, there's a whole school of economic uh, thought that's um, called new institutional economics, or NIE. Uh, for sure. It's got a lot of attention. The very, very important figures like Douglas North, um, for example, Nobel Prize winner uh, in economic history, which is quite rare for a Nobel Prize in economics to go to a, an economic historian, uh, was uh, de- he developed this field um, thinking about uh, what are economic institu- institutions, what he called uh, the rules of the game. How do societies work? Um, That brings in law, of course, to what are the rules and how do people play by them? Um, And uh, this is really an important aspect of how um, economies perform. Um, And the basic idea is that, well, some economies in the modern world perform really well, but other economies don't. Um, There's corruption or uh, economic uh, failure, uh, for other reasons, uh, market failure. So how do we understand that? History should be informing us. We can go back in time and look at how civilization X, Y, or Z are, are constructed, how they work. And of course, for pre-industrial history, there's a wide variety of types of, of uh, civilizations, of, of societies, that we could look at to say, well, here's a good one. This seems to perform pretty well. Here's a bad one. What about economic growth? Um, If that's the important thing, uh, and that's certainly important for modern economics. I don't think it's important actually for understanding the pre-industrial world, although I'll probably get email about that because that's a debate um, (laughs) uh, these days. Um, uh, You know, how do we get growth? How do we sustain growth? Well, what are the what are the great institutions? What are the important institutions that matter? Well, for Doug North and for NIE, um, it's property, property rights. How is property defined? Property rights is the basis of modern economies. Um, You have to define property a certain way. You have to defend private property rights and so on. And if you do that, you're going to get optimal economic growth, um, and so on. So uh, this is an, as, historians like NIE, uh, and I've read a lot, and I knew Doug North um, pretty well. He was a, he was a great man. Um, it's great for us because th- these are economists who say actually history matters. History mm-hmm. matters a lot. So that engages ancient historians and medieval historians um, in these grand debates about uh, you know how to how economies perform. Over time, so that's one approach that's been very popular. There are problems with it, of course. Um, There are problems with modern theory, which is uh, Finley is probably rolling in his grave because he thought, no, you cannot use modern theory, coming from economics or or anywhere else, to understand the pre-industrial world. Um, But that's been done quite a lot, and there's other theories now too. Um, that I suggest in that chapter, including evolutionary theory, that I think yeah, is talk probably about more important. Evolutionary
0: theory, specifically because yeah, I least. noticed you saw in my notes you specifically I did, described yeah. <laughs> italicized, uh, and you don't use a lot of italics, so this is this like struck out at me. Lamarckian evolutionary processes, and as yes. someone who's like who's probably overly interested for historian epigenetics, um, then Lamarckian yeah. evolutionary—that's pro- a very interesting phrase. So, what you want? Ex- could you explain? Oh that? gosh.
1: Yeah, well, we, we should unpack that. I mean, it's, it's a huge, it's, it's a huge topic, obviously. It's it in that talents because, <laughs> you know, I mean, th- this gets at um, a really interesting, a really interesting, uh, quite active and important field called um, cultural evolutionary theory. How do, how do cultures, how do societies evolve over time? Um, and the basic, more or less cartoon version is, they evolve like like genes evolve. I mean, I, it's, Lamarck is, I guess, italicized because I, even I, who's uh, not particularly um, an expert in, in evolutionary theory, um, know that really it's about epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Lamarck is kind of an old idea. But uh, the basic idea is that cultural traits, like genetic traits, can be, can be uh, inherited. I mean, there's kind of learning involved, and then they can be passed on to the next generation. This is more or less – uh, the idea of uh, good institutions versus bad institutions over time, really good institutions should prevail because they work better um, and they get transmitted into the next generation um, and, and, and so on. Um, so, you know, good ideas sort of survive more efficient to use an economic term, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of uh, survive and less efficient institutions go away. That's not true, of course which gets that really interesting historical problems of what what institutions actually are. Actually, a lot of inefficient institutions survive. And here Finley would say, aha, I told you so, um, because elites want them to survive because they Mm -hmm. benefit from inefficient institutions sometimes. So, yeah. you know, here yeah. are elites are still really important in terms of how how things go, of course.
0: Well, that, that's um, not necessarily that doesn't necessarily <laughs> contradict Lamarckian or or, oh, or, okay. or 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 even Darwinian evolutionary processes is what I mean. I mean, mm. is that there's a, mm. there is another aspect of the society which finds those things beneficial. Uh, so we're back yes. to, you know, uh, we're, this is competition that we're talking about. Yes. Um, yeah. Not not, not, just some, exactly. not just some simple raw numbers. Um so, also paleoclimatolo- oh, right. paleoclimatology—that you've done a lot of—you've done a lot of work on this. So, could you just describe that and 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 your your interest in it? Some of the things
1: that you've done to push this forward. Well, oh, I'm happy to. I could go on all day. How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, you know, we got another thirty uh, minutes. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, so, I'm really enthused about it. Again, this is a fairly controversial thing uh, in in history. Uh, Even now uh, in in economics, uh, there's a lot of resistance to uh, from very important people these days uh, that it's all about institutions. It's not about environment or climate or climate change. It's not really part of the story uh, for uh, human societies and how they perform. I mean, I I disagree with it. And here comes paleoclimatology. Um, The old idea is uh, what's called determinism. And you can go back. I would encourage your listeners to even go back to Herodotus uh, and his histories. Um, You know, as the origin, even before Herodotus, really, that environments determine culture, basically. Um, And so you have hard people in Greece and soft people in a nice verdant river valley like Egypt, Um, you know, sort of like uh, Southern California. You You can all be very relaxed. The climate is good. You don't have to do anything. Um, as opposed to working really hard with bad soil, which is what the Greeks had. you know. So this basic idea that the, your environment, wherever you are in the world, will determine um, culture and how it's structured and so on. Well, that same idea is, is used today to reject what's going on now. And it's a different world the last 10 years because of this field that we call paleoclimatology, reconstructing past climates. Um, and we can do that now uh, with – greater and greater precision because we have a lot of uh, what are called natural archives or climate proxy records Mm -hmm. coming from ice from Antarctica or from ocean sediment cores uh, for studying ancient pollen and many others um, with increasing uh, precision. Whereas literally 10, 15 years ago, the errors would be plus or minus a century, for for understanding, you know, warming, cooling trends or even shocks caused by large volcanic eruptions. If you're an historian, you really can't work with that kind of time frame, plus or minus 100 years.
0: Not even an ancient historian um, can work with that frame. Not
1: even, not even in ancient history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but resist. now, no, no, it's true. But now, the last 10 years, we're getting climate proxy records of less than a year. Uh, margin of error. Um, now we're talking historical time frame. Now we can start lining up uh, historical records, even from the ancient world uh, and climate records um, with some precision. And we also have now really better and better climate modeling, which is the source of a lot of debates these days about global warming, what we should do about it. But the models are actually evolving remarkably, with very powerful supercomputers and much better data, because we have better climate proxy record data, and that that feeds into better models. Uh, I think this is revolutionizing everything. We can really see the impact of even short-term shocks to climate, like large volcanic eruptions somewhere in the world, which which are things that uh, my colleagues and I In our project here at, at Yale uh, But it's a worldwide project now mm. um, What we're working on These kind of short-term shocks Which we, you can see in ice cores And you can actually see In historical records um, Short-term droughts, Short-term shocks To the Nile River well, Yeah, let's, look, t- like let's a talk about that
0: let's take, a, let's take a segue You've been working you, you teach a class in Iceland And I was asking What in the world Is someone who's interested An ancient historian Doing in Iceland um, And you said It's the volcanoes So what are? The, can you give some examples of shocks that volcanoes in Iceland c- caused to the Nile River system, and
1: how that would have affected the ancient economy? Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's a really surprising um, question, but really large. So uh, volcanoes are still around. Uh, yes. Of course, they're er- erupting every day. Um, but we we have not had a uh, a a large eruption that has impacted the global climate. Since Pinatubo in the Philippines in 1991, so we're living in a relatively quiescent period volcanically. No, let's please, say don't,
0: please, you shouldn't have said that. This is like a horror film. Yeah. uh no. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah.
1: you know, the lesson is, you know, they're going to start happening again, uh, and yeah. we know from the from ice cores that there are periods of history. The period I study, the last that I specialize in, the last four centuries BC was a very active period volcanically. Large eruptions, you know, not tiny eruptions, but really large eruptions that, that put sulfates from the eruption and ash into the stratosphere, really high up uh, into the stratosphere. And that circulates the ash and the sulfates, the particulates um, hemispherically, if not globally. That reduces sunlight hitting the earth basically. And that impacts how the climate is working. Um, including, for example, how the monsoon in the Indian Ocean um, is behaving. And the Indian Ocean monsoon basically is the driver of the Nile River, the the rainfall in East Africa that drives the annual flood of the river, which is how Egypt works until the high dam was completed in 1970 um, AD. Uh, But it's also how India works. It's also how East Asia works. Um, So really large eruptions impact what we call the hydroclimate, you know, rainfall patterns worldwide um, sometimes. So to give an example, the Laki, LIKI eruption in 1783, 1784 really impacted a global climate um, pretty severely, including Egypt uh, for a long period of time, really from that eruption until Napoleon's army gets there in the late 18th century, almost for, for 20 years. Now there's more to the story than just the volcanic eruption. Um, but really it was Lockheed and actually Benjamin Franklin, believe it or not, uh, who's uh, sitting in Europe and actually for the first time, it looks like posits that it must be this Lockheed eruption in Iceland that's causing all this what dry fog in London um, and in Europe um, and and changing uh agriculture, really impacting agriculture, um, let alone people's um, health. Um, He was right, of course, that um, this eruption in far off Iceland was really impacting um, Europe. But it impacts places further afield as well. We now understand that uh, really um, uh, increasingly um, well. um, And it's particularly uh, these volcanoes located in very northern latitudes, Iceland, Alaska, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia, uh, which has really large volcanoes. Um, We can understand when these things erupt uh, now because of paleoclimatology. We have no uh, eyewitness accounts. We do for Lockheed in the 18th century, but ancient eruptions other than Vesuvius, where we have really good eyewitness accounts by Pliny the Younger, the most famous account of a volcano. And he's sitting there watching the eruption actually kill his famous uncle
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in, in real time, which is an amazing um, story. But Vesuvius, unless you're living in Pompeii, was not a very important eruption, not a very big eruption um, and by historical standards. But really large eruptions deposit ash and particulates in polar ice in in Greenland, or the Antarctic, and we can now study that. We can date it really specifically right now back to 500 BC. Hopefully, we can go further back uh, in time eventually. Um, and that sort of changes the game. We can start building, in a sense, a real time series relatively specifically that we, that we can then check against the historical record and actually see some things happening.
0: So I, I should say ask why is it the northern volcanoes? Why are they important, and not merely because you can di- discover them in the ice? Do they have an outsized impact um, on the rest of the world climate or the global climate than does a um, equatorial volcano?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it looks that way. Although uh, this is a very a very uh, busy field in paleoclimatology these days, and I'm far from an expert. I, I work with the experts, and I sit in at a lot of meetings now. That's how I spend my time. That's why we go to Iceland mm-hmm. and other places these days. Um, so, no, there are other volcanoes. Uh, the Indonesian volcanoes, yeah, uh, you think of Krakatoa.
0: Tambora. Uh, for,
1: yeah. uh, Tambora in 1815, really big monsters. Um, Indonesia has really large volcanoes. And, you know, a large enough eruption near the equator will also do a lot of uh, uh, damage to the, the global climate system. You know, we're talking a year or two normally, but it can be a little bit longer than that in terms of impact. Um, so uh, that the basic principle is um, – and I'm talking about how the monsoon works mm-hmm. around the world. The, the monsoon, you know, is a, a rainfall band uh, that's worldwide just north of the equator – um, and the monsoon migrates northward every summer months because of physical properties of the ocean and the land heating up differently um, in the summer. Um, and, and, and this these ra- the rainfall moves north, which is why you have monsoon seasons uh, in places like India. Um, northern hemisphere eruptions uh, basically uh, cool the northern hemisphere, reduce sunlight because of this very large ash cloud that circulates, and that cooling that's produced actually shifts the monsoon or prevents it from moving northward for for physical reasons, um, basically. Mm -hmm. It it moves away from the point of cooling toward the warming, um, basically. So southern hemisphere eruptions, there are volcanoes in the southern hemisphere. A, A large enough one would do the opposite. It would push the monsoon further north, probably causing more rainfall. I mean, it's a very technical field. There's more to it than that. I'm giving a cartoon version. Um, But there's a lot now going on in this very field um, that even the ancient record can help climatologists and modelers because we have records of, for Egypt, for example, because of the great documentation We have in the papyri, Mm -hmm. uh, beginning around 300 B.C. and going forward, we have a lot of historical records um, from Egypt uh, about Nile conditions. This is what we're doing in our project here is kind of code these historical records. They're telling us something about river behavior, um, which is really telling us something about monsoon behavior. So,
0: some uh, somebody who might be a little uh, in the in the back row uh, might not be following this uh, will say, okay. "Well, yeah, okay. What's the Nile got to do within the ancient economy?" Um, so, yeah, what does the Nile then? Why why does the mon- the monsoon affects the Nile, which affects the ancient economy? How or ancient economies? Um, how?
1: Yeah, great. Well, so with respect to Egypt in particular, which I I. I'm a little biased uh, because I work on Egypt, but it's a really important part of ancient economies, um, which classical historians, not so much now, but in the past, just thought was so different and and separate that we we could just ignore Egypt uh, and leave it to the specialists. But Egypt, of course, is connected to a lot of places, um, including grain supply to the Greek world and later to Rome. Mm -hmm. So if you have a a monsoon failure or a reduction in rainfall in East Africa, uh, you have less water in the Nile watershed. That means you have no flood or reduced flood that hits Egypt, which means you have less water to irrigate agricultural fields. You have less crops growing, uh, less grain um, to be had. Um, So it affects food supply and food distribution. It affects the taxation system because Egypt always works on taxing agricultural land from from the pharaohs all the way through the Ptolemies, the Romans, and so on. Agriculture is the lifeblood, of course, not only of Egypt, but everywhere in the ancient world. Um, And so, you know, kind of knock-on effects uh, from that. Uh, We also know that large eruptions affect other places uh, outside of the monsoon. It affects the Mediterranean as well in different ways. But with respect to Egypt, that's kind of the story um, we would tell. Uh, and interestingly, also really large eruptions. There's some correlation that we're still working on. There's some correlation between these shocks to the, f- uh, to the flood of the Nile, also to the Euphrates, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. in the Near East, um, and disease and the spread of disease. A weakened population, a hungry population is more susceptible to disease. Um, and it looks like there's some connection between um, early plagues uh, and these kind of climate shocks, mm-hmm. uh, for example. So this is a, an important uh, area of uh, of new research uh, that's connected to ancient economy uh, in, in a lot of ways. It's not everything. Uh, climate isn't and climate change isn't the, the entire story for sure, but let's say it's Let's say it's 5% of the story or or 10% of the story. It's a new part of the story. And because we have dynamic information, that we have specific information uh, year by year, decade by decade in a lot of places, that's actually uh, an important new kind of historical archive for us to to work with.
0: Okay, you've... you've, we've uh, you've suggested a couple things there also in in, in that last uh, comment, uh, which uh, shows ways in which uh, we should stop thinking not just about the ancient economy as as a, as monolithic but also about the ancient Mediterranean as a monolithic um, mm. to to uh, sort of uh, give some feedback. What I just heard is you're saying that for a long time, uh, historians of the ancient, uh, ancient world didn't consider Egypt to be part of the story, which is kind of for someone from outside, it feels kind of crazy. Um, it's there, isn't it? It's an ancient world. It's yes. in the Mediterranean. Um, but then uh, so if we integrate Egypt into that story, then we've we've already we've moved. a We've got a bigger geography than we did before. Um, seems to me that the monsoon affects the Arabian Sea. Um, And it affects, uh, therefore, it's affecting the uh, the the Mesopotamia Uh, seems to me that, you know, what little I know that Mesopotamia is somehow connected with this uh, economic system. Um, So all of a sudden we're beyond the boundaries of the um, we're beyond the boundaries of the Mediterranean. So that perhaps even talking about the ancient Mediterranean economy, the second word isn't that helpful either Mediterranean.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this is why I call the book The Open Sea, uh, which uh, I guess not everyone fully understands. But, you know, the, the Mediterranean is a big is a big place with potentially a lot of connections always um, historically. So way beyond ancient meaning Greece and Rome, um, but Mediterranean wide. And as you suggest now and as I try to do in the book, at least uh, nod to it. Actually, we need to look at Egypt given the documentation for sure, but also how it's connected to lots of places in the Eastern Mediterranean world uh, for many reasons, but also Western Asia and the ancient Near East, Um, even also uh, in Hellenistic and Roman times, you know, after Alexander the Great. uh, We need to look at the Indian Ocean, which is uh, increasingly uh, important trade to India, Uh, across Indian Ocean is becoming increasingly important by the second century BC, Uh, for example, really important for Rome. And all of a sudden we have a much bigger um, place uh, and a much more complicated place to try to understand that is constantly, by the way, um, interacting. Uh, It it isn't like we have uh, these little pockets um, that eventually get connected maybe by Rome Uh, in the second century A.D. um, or something. This connectivity uh, goes much further back uh, in time, including the origins of what we call uh, the Silk Road, uh, or Silk Mm -hmm. Roads, plural, I would suggest, um, as well, which goes uh, much further back historically um, than the second century A.D., which is typically when uh, uh, historians kind of begin that story. So, yeah, I think it's a more... I think it's a more complicated world further back in time. That's sort of the bottom line. And I think that's important to understand that uh, in terms of uh, how history moves forward. And we have to start further back in time in a much more complex and, I think, much more interesting world than the cartoon version we tend to get. Well, we've
0: been going on for a while now, so I want to start drawing things together. You you suggest in the conclusion – um, that uh, you say, rather than seeking to compare pre-modern economic institutions to later European institutions, we should concentrate on the intercomparison of pre-modern economies. Um, is that sort of your manifesto statement? Is that like, a, yeah. that, that could be on the poster? <laughs> that could be on the flag?
1: Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. I, I, yeah, I one of the purposes of the, of the book, which is a little bit uh, inside baseball, for the general reader, um, is to uh, encourage uh, research programs and encourage graduate students to bring them in to attract them. We need we need smart people uh, in the next generation I mean, in this field, and there's a lot to do. And so, yeah, this uh, I guess manifesto <laughs> uh, is a like kind of term uh, one could use um, that there's sort of everything to do, uh, but we but there are lots of new things one has to learn. Uh, and a different way of kind of trying to understand what we call antiquity. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: you mentioned something earlier in the book, uh, which has uh, made my antenna um, tingle. Um, you uh, describe a field I call analytical analytical humanities. Now, I think in the, mm. in the course of the conversation, uh, we a prob, listener probably has the idea of what that might be, but could you close our, our conversation by describing what you mean by that broadly, and then perhaps some other examples or how the approach might be further developed?
1: Yeah, um, it's this is something that's been close to my heart for a long time, and it's partly trying to engage humanities in general, um, but ancient historians and classicists and egyptologists and assyriologists uh archaeologists too or although less so uh to to try to engage everybody even in the debate um, but also as a means to move forward um in this kind of work um that is uh the ancient languages we deal with um and the ancient material is really it's complicated and i think a lot of scholars sort of say uh yeah, it's really complicated. I'm going to stay and it's it's controversial and I don't want to say anything controversial that's going to be proven wrong. So what I'm going to do instead is sort of describe this text that I have. I'm going to (laughs) translate the text with a few learned notes about the vocabulary or describe this object, uh, without really worrying about, um, context or typicality or, um, comparison, um, and, and so on. just sort of, sort of static descriptions of of things. That's sort of how um, a lot of people work. It's kind of a safe way to work. But what I call analytical humanities kind of in general is really the next step, uh, answering the big question, so what? Um, what is this thing? Um, is, it, is it typical or is it um, very unusual? How do we know? Uh, you know, a lot of people in Nightfield field and papyrology—people who publish ancient texts written on papyrus from Egypt, either in Greek or e- Egyptian language, um, uh, Coptic um, later, and Arabic—you um, know, they they're going to uh, um, publish um, uh, texts that they have in front of them, no matter if it's telling us nothing new or, or not. It's just here's an unpublished text. We're going to publish it because, mm-hmm. because we can. Well, that's the, well, that's the incentive uh, structure. That's the incentive structure. Um, in, indeed, this is how the world uh, sort of works. And, and my point is, <clears throat> okay, that is that's important. The technical skills are really important. I don't disparage uh, philology, you know, the study of ancient languages, grammar. Uh, it's really foundationally uh, important. It always has been. We have to historians have to control their sources, as they say. No, no doubt about that, um, but we have to get on to well. So what? Why does it matter? Um, how is it connected to anything? What kind of stories can we tell about the uh, the, the material? And the, one of the ways that you get at that, I think, um, is through comparison. Uh, in order to understand what you're looking at, you have to kind of know what else is around um, to to uh, you know under, better understand um, the the phenomenon that you're you're trying to. Whether it's a market exchange or, you know, property rights uh, in a land sale contract or, or whatever, you know, to kind of understand um, the, the specific context um, that you're trying to basically reconstruct. And I think that's, to me, what analytical, analytical uh, humanities um, should be about, that we, we need to be, you know, I mean, I, this goes back to when I was a very young grad student, always asking why, I think. Um, well, I was told you really can't do history or historical analysis from the papyri or from ancient evidence, because not all texts are published yet. You have to wait. It has <laughs> to be the next the, – literally, I was told this. Have, we have to wait for the next generation or maybe two generations from now, our grandchildren, in order to do the analytical work. Yeah. We have to publish everything first. Well, my God, um, we have to publish everything first, and then you look at the, the early text editions that I work with. You got to publish those again uh, and update them before you can do any work, and so it goes. And of course, that was the uh, that sounds crazy now,
0: but of course, that's also why you know uh, classicists are better than the rest of us. Um, They have uh, such a guys have had such a long term sort of head down grinding forward approach. Um, You're the defensive lineman. You're the all uh, offensive lineman of the of 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 humanities. and that is—it uh, sounds futile, but also is really scary to face. I mean, it's like it's—and um, it has it has long-term, very powerful results.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, no, the classical tradition is, uh, yeah, it's uh, very impressive. Um, it but, can be impregnable. Mm-hmm. but yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it—it's a hard thing to, you know, it's a hard thing to knock over uh, for sure. If you say actually you know, Babylon is equally important or Ptolemaic Egypt, we need to look at, you know, Finley said, no way. Um, We're Mm -hmm. not looking at those, that evidence, even though I know it's out there, because these are very different societies that are structured differently than the classical world and not really part of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas I would say, no, no.
0: Which increasingly looks like an arbitrary uh, choice on his part. Um, I think so yeah, yeah. Um, the, the this this process though I mean you're a paperologist um, you're working with someone who says uh, does uh pollen grains uh, in the uh, seafloor, or someone like uh, Valerie Trouet, who is, um, uh, studies yeah, tree rings. Work. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, just talked to her in episode 156. Um, mm. you, we can't expect that she knows papyrology. We can't expect that you know tree rings. The analytical humanity seems to be going in a direction um, like the sciences have been for some time. Um, of sort of joint publication of of teams of work, yep. um, you yes. know. I, I remember suggesting this in grad school like 20 years ago, and and someone said "No, that that can't happen. That's never going to oh happen my God. In, the, in the humanities. Um, that's <laughs> just that's not right. That's not wrong." I mean, would you imagine that you're going to have? Do you have people writing dissertations as part of teams? Uh, that will be sort of. They might be the first author on a on a on an article or a paper or a study of this kind. Uh, yeah, but it'll. it'll be a lot more like in chemistry or microbiology than traditionally in classics or any other t- type of history?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm completely, uh, I totally agree with you. This is how we work here. We have to work like scientists. This is analytical humanities, which begins with really, I think, and here here Finley was precisely correct, um, where he said in one of his famous, more or less a, an, an essay, um, the uh, the the ancient material, ancient texts um, ask no questions, but sometimes they can provide answers. <laughs> yes, yes, I would say. And that's the that's the point. We have to start with what's the question or what's the problem? And then how do we answer that question or solve that problem? Well, in the agglomerative framework, the way Silicon Valley, you know the way xerox park in the silicon valley um, works get a team around you and solve the problem uh, and you assemble a team based on what you need you need a you need a dendrochronologist a tree ring person you need an ice core geochemist you need uh, some statistics you know whatever it is yeah that's that is the future in addition to and here at humanities it's actually going to be harder but here's the whole future there's like everything to do now I think, but we have to work harder. We have to, we still write our own books and articles, graduate students, at least for the moment, still write their own dissertations. But I, I have uh, very good graduate students right now who are part of the project and in part, at least getting ideas, uh, they're thinking um, from the project and incorporating it in. And so, yeah, sometimes there'll be first authors, um, uh, we have a paper coming out that I think is spectacular. Stay tuned uh, hmm. on the first century B.C. that's going to blow people away. And um, I think there are 20 authors on it. Uh, and wow. there are two ancient historians, one archaeologist uh, and, and me and a lot of specialist climatologists. And um, I think we're like author 14 and 15 out of 20. And so what? This is the work is phenomenal and it's going to generate a lot of other work. And I love it that I'm author number whatever it is, 14 on a 20 author paper in a very high high profile journal, hopefully. Um, Yeah. Now, for grad students and young people, they have to be careful about the traditional boundaries that still exist. I prefer these boundaries go away. I prefer (laughs) to say to the universities, let the disciplinary boundaries dissolve. Uh, this has been talked about for now actually for decades by people on the leading edge let these boundaries dissolve it's about problems and questions of course we have specialties we can't know everything which means we have to work in teams of teams of experts um so i think we have to configure we have to configure things differently that's my ideal there's a lot to work against as you say there's a lot of really large uh, offensive linemen that we have to <laughs> run, run past to get uh, to get the ball. Let's say, but yeah. I, I think it's very much worth worth uh, pushing because I think there's a whole future waiting for us uh, that, that makes the pre-industrial world both relevant to understanding the modern world, but on its own so much more interesting.
0: My guest today has been Joe Manning. He's the author of The Open Sea, The Economic Life of the Ancient Mediterranean World from the Iron Age to the Rise of Rome, which is available from Princeton University Press. Joe, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking.
1: No, oh, that was fun. I really enjoyed it.
0: For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddatt. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.